life of David. Our series is called In the Footsteps of King David, as many of you know, because we're learning to follow in David's footsteps. Huh? Pretty, good, uh, pretty good connection there. We're learning from David's example. We've learned that David is a man after God's own heart, that David fulfilled his calling, that David loved God, and, and uh, despite trials he went through, and even despite errors he made, God called him a man after his own heart. And so we want to be like that. We want to be like David. We want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. We want to learn to be like Jesus and to follow Jesus. And David is our example. More, more than so many other people in the Bible, God uh, put David in the Bible for us to be our example. Many of you know that uh, of, of all the stuff written about people in the Bible, they, uh, Jesus is number one. He, Jesus has got four gospels and all these prophecies, but David is number two. There are two different narratives about his life. He writes probably about half the Psalms. David is, is mentioned second most in the Bible. And there's a reason why. Because he's to be our example. And to, uh, we've been learning a lot about him. number of months that we've been learning about David. Last week we learned that David had a revelation of God's love. That David knew God's love. We've been looking at the Psalms. We've been seeing David's faith. That David was a man of faith who understood he had a covenant with God. And he believed God's promises. We've seen David's, um, David's love for God's word. We've seen that he would meditate the word and sing the word in his songs. And that he was a man of the word. And that also he was a man of God's presence. We focused on that in the last couple of weeks. The Lord's been calling us to be a people of his presence. To cultivate the presence of God in our life through worship. And so we've learned a number of things about David. There's a bunch of other things we, we've learned that I didn't mention. And today I want to talk to you about or I, I want to answer the question, how did David respond to trials? We're going to spend a number of weeks focusing on the trials that David went through. As many of you know, much of 1 Samuel, really most of 1 Samuel, is about David's trials before he was king. And not to ruin the story, but most of you know he became King David. That's why he's, the king is up there on the PowerPoint. That He did make it through the trials. He did become king. And God did fulfill his purpose in David's life. But for probably, I, I estimate, almost a decade, David went through a crazy trial. Much of 1 Samuel is about those trials. And they're really some of the most precious portions of Scripture regarding David. They're really my favorite. I love to just read that part of, of Scripture about what he went through. Not because I'm like one of those kind of people that love when other people go through pain. It's not like that, right? I love to see how David responded. I love to see how he responded to God in the midst of these horrible trials. And that's the question. How did David respond to trials? Because like a tube of toothpaste, when you squeeze it, you find out what's in it, right? When you go through trials, when when the pressure's on and you get pushed into a corner... That's when we find out what's really in your heart. You can say things, you can put on, like you can kind of be fake to God for a little while, you can be fake to other people, but when the pressure's on, you know, you can go, bless God in church, but when you're on Mon- in Monday morning, you know, and the pressure's on, or when you go through trials, that's what really reveals what's in your heart, doesn't it? So I love it because how David responded in trials reveals what was in his heart. And we already know he, was a heart a- he has a heart after God, right? How David responded to God was good, and we can walk in those footsteps. It's absolutely amazing. So we're going to see that everything about David was tested. His faith, his character, his integrity, uh, his obedience to God, everything was tested in this trial, and he came through it. And we're going to see, as the pressure came on David, what came out of his heart, what came out of his 
heart, what came out of his mouth, what was his reaction. And so uh, turn with me, 1 Samuel 18. Father, I'm asking that you would reveal your heart and break off lies about you and cause us to uh, have a heart like David. I pray that grace would abound to us as we hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Samuel 18, uh, this is the chapter after David's killed Goliath. He's been put into uh, a position of leadership. He's been put into as a captain of the army, and he's rising up in promotion, as I've mentioned before. Uh, and he basically kept getting victory after victory after victory. And so, uh, just to summarize, I'm going to highlight a couple verses, but mostly I'm going to summarize like three or four chapters here. Uh, David is rising in popularity. He keeps getting victory in battles, so he keeps getting favor from his leaders, he keeps getting uh, promotion, and he keeps getting money. So he's rising up, okay? Not only that is, King Saul, well, let me say it this way, David, he's rising up. King Saul, though, is jealous. The moment King Saul sees David promoted, King Saul's reaction is jealousy. He thinks to himself, oh, they love him. What, what, more, what more is he going to get? He's going to get the kingdom. And, and Saul becomes paranoid and he becomes suspicious of David that David is going to try to take the kingdom away from Saul. And so Saul, the Bible says, becomes uh, fearful of David, jealous, and angry, which all those things usually go together. They, they like hanging out together. And so as you're reading through 1 Samuel 18, David is rising in popularity. David is rising in favor and so David, in David's mind, he thinks everything's good. Everything's good. Not, not only that is, Saul starts to conspire behind the scenes. Nobody knows what's really going on in Saul's heart. He doesn't tell anyone. But deep down in Saul's heart, he wants David to die. So at first he thinks, I'll just have the Philistines kill him. So he just keeps sending David out to battle. That doesn't work because keep, David keeps winning. So then David, or Saul devises a scheme. I'll have him marry my daughter, Michal. So... He, the idea is that David has to go and kill a bunch of Philistines and get their foreskin. Right? Basically circumcise a bunch of dead Philistines in order for the bride price. It's pretty disgusting if you ask me. And, um, and so David goes and does it and comes back and that becomes the bride price. And so David actually marries Michal. This is where we're at in the, at the beginning or the end of 1 Samuel 18. And so in 1 Samuel 18, you've got to understand, David's thinking... I'm doing good, I'm growing in promotion, I got money. I just married the king's daughter. Saul must like me. Saul's got to like me. In, in David's mind, favor, blessing, promotion, it's all good. There are no signs at all that Saul doesn't like David. The only thing is that one time Saul tried to throw a spear at him, but David thinking, oh, that's just, you know, Saul's kind of crazy sometimes. That's why I play. You know, David's job was to play the guitar. It wasn't a guitar. It was, uh, what was it, like a lyre or a harp or something? David would play the harp while Saul was having one of his, like, manic episodes or his, like, crazy uh, bipolar episodes or something, which was demonically endorsed. And, and so he's like, Saul would freak out. David would sing the music, the worship songs, and Saul's, Saul would, like, calm down. Well, David just thought, oh, well, that song must, he must not like that song. I'll play a different one, right? <laughs> no, that's my, I threw that in there. That's not in the text of Scripture, but just... David's thinking like, hey, what's, I don't know what's going on. All right. But when David marries McCall, David's thinking everything's good. And in verse 28 of, of 1 Samuel 18, verse 28, it says this. The Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. It says it more than once throughout chapter 18. That Saul just kept realizing, oh my goodness, like this guy's got blessing and favor on his life. And he kept getting more and more angry and jealous and afraid. 
And it says, and that McCall's, McCall, Saul's daughter, loved him. So now he's like, oh, my family loves him. And Jonathan, he's like his best friend, you know, because uh, Saul's uh, son Jonathan and David were best friends, covenant partners. So now Saul's thinking like, my whole family likes this guy. And, um, and it says in verse 29, and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul, listen, so Saul became David's enemy continually. This is the shift right here. When he married McCall, I wonder, you know, it's like after the wedding day or something like that. Something shifted in Saul's heart. He was afraid, he was angry of David, but something shifted in his heart. When he realized, dude, everyone loves this guy, everything's going good for this guy, his heart shifted. He wasn't just mad. He wasn't just afraid. Enemy. His heart shifted and from the rest, for the rest of David's life and for the rest of Saul's life, Saul was obsessed with killing David. No longer is Saul going to be subtle. No longer is this going to be, man, I really wish David would just get killed by one of those Philistines. Here, David, I got another battle for you to fight. No, now, he will outrightly be David's enemy and try to kill him. Something shifted in his heart. Just... And that's what that verse represents right there. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely, uh, also could be translated succeeded, he was successful, than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. See, David just keeps rising in favor, and Saul, he just, I hate this guy. I want him dead. And this literally becomes the obsession of Saul's life. So here's what happens in chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. It's the first time Saul told everyone, hey guys, come here, come here, Jonathan, come here guys, I want you to kill this man. First time. This is the beginning of where it gets really bad. Jonathan, because he loves David, because they're best friends, and because they've made a covenant with one another, which means they're going to be faithful to one another no matter what, Jonathan goes to David and says, my dad's really mad right now, all right? You need to hide out. The only way that David actually finds out that Saul wants to kill him is because someone told him. David had no clue. And so basically, David hides out for a little while, like about a day. And Jonathan says, dude, it's all right. I'll talk to my dad. It's going to be fun. Okay, so Jonathan goes to Saul and says, hey, dad, David likes you. He killed Goliath. It's all good. He's like your best captive. And Saul goes, yeah, you're right. Okay, okay, let him come back. Now, we don't know. I mean, is he just like, is he just smoke screening? You know, is he just uh, faking it? Or is he really like bipolar? I'm thinking a little both or something like that. Uh, bipolar, I mean like, you know, uh, demonically. So here, crazy stuff. And he, um, and so David actually comes back. He hides out for like a day because he hears Saul wants to kill him. And then Jonathan says, no, no, it's all good. So he comes back. David's like, oh, all right. I guess Saul was just having one of his days, you know? One of those days for Saul. And so David goes back, and everything's fine. The text seems to suggest that he's fights some more battles. It's a number of maybe months or something like that. And then David's playing his heart before Saul one day, and Saul just chucks the spirit David thing. And he literally says, it says, I'm going to pin that guy to the wall. And I think something about that incident, David went, uh, I don't think he just is mad. I think he really does want to kill me. And so David realizes when that happens in 1 Samuel 19, dude, this guy wants to kill me. And he goes to his house, which is obviously like at the same property as where the king lives, and he goes to his wife, and his wife, McCall, 
uh, uh, Saul's daughter says, dude, my dad wants to kill you. There are men surrounding our house. You need to leave. So he actually has to be convinced by his wife. He's like, nah, no, it's all right, guys, right? It's all good, it's not. And his wife is like, no, you, you, you have to leave. And so he sneaks out the window and he escapes, okay? First he runs to Samuel, who, who is the prophet who anointed him. He runs to Samuel. Saul sends four different groups of men and Saul goes himself. The Holy Spirit literally stops these men from killing David. So can you imagine David just like watching these men fall down and like prophesy? David's probably like, what the heck is going on here? But he sees Saul literally come to try to kill him. The Holy Spirit stops Saul. David runs off and goes to Jonathan. So he goes right back to his best friend. He says, Jonathan. And actually look at this in 1 Samuel 20. Look at what he says to Jonathan. This actually shows you that he's totally confused. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, which is where Samuel was. And he went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? Did you hear that? It's like, Jonathan, seriously, what have I done? And he, and he says to Jonathan, what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David's like, did I do something wrong? Did I sin against your father? What did I do? I have no idea. Can you imagine how bewildered, how confused David would be? Like, what is going on? I didn't do anything. I thought this guy liked me. I just married his daughter and he's trying to kill me. And so he goes to Jonathan, who's his friend, but also Saul's dad, and says, what is going on? And David actually says, look, if I've sinned against the king, you kill me. Which is an amazing thing about David's integrity. David's like, dude, if I've done something against the king, you kill me. But don't let Saul kill me. This is an amazing uh, statement that David makes. So David and Jonathan, they reconfirm their covenant. Basically, David asked Saul, uh, I'm sorry, David asked Jonathan, commit to me that you will not kill me. Basically, you're going to take care of me. And Jonathan says the same thing to David. It's an amazing time where Jonathan actually says to David, commit to me, David, that you will not kill me or any of my descendants. That no matter what happens, you'll keep your covenant with me. And Jonathan, see, David knew he was going to be king. And Jonathan knew it too. They talked about it. And Jonathan literally says, when you're king, don't, let, don't kill any of my descendants. It's amazing, isn't it? Da Jonathan knew the anointing on David's life, knew the promise of God on David's life, and Jonathan wanted David to be king more than he wanted his own position. As long as David was going to be king, Jonathan wouldn't. Jonathan's the next in line. And yet, D Jonathan was more committed to the friendship and to the covenant and to the anointing on David's life. It's an amazing friendship there. So Jonathan and David reconfirmed this covenant. Like, you're going to be for me, I'm going to be for you. And they devise a plan of finding out if Saul's really against David or not. Because, you know, basically David's like, hey, we got to know. Like, does he really want me dead? And so David has Jonathan, uh, John, uh, basically David hides, uh, hides out again for three days, and Jonathan goes to a festival at, with Saul. Okay, so everyone's at this festival. The first night, Saul thinks to himself, which I think is the weirdest thing for anyone to think, oh, I wonder why David's not here. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> whatever. He thinks, oh, well, I wonder why David's not here. He must be unclean, meaning he can't like enjoy this new moon festival feast that we're having for the Lord. So he must not be here for that reason. The next day, so he doesn't say anything the first night. The next night, they're having the festival, eating the dinner. And Saul asked Jonathan, hey, yeah, where, where's David? Where's David? 
And Jonathan says, oh, 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 this is the, the, the plan they devised. Oh, well, David asked to go to Bethlehem to have the feast with his dad and, and his family. And Saul freaks out. He literally starts cussing at his son, calls his son the, the son of an illegitimate woman, I mean, like, like, mean, you know, to his own son, just starts swearing at his own son. His anger just explodes, and he says to his son, don't you know, I mean, don't, don't you know that I know that you are, you are against me, that you are conspiring with this David? He says, you know you can't be king. As long as David's alive, you'll never be king. They all knew. Jonathan's probably thinking, yeah, I know. <laughs> Saul is furious, throws a spear at his own son, picks up a spear and throws it at the wall at Jonathan's head. Jonathan is so mad, he just leaves. He's so mad, he can't even eat. Have you ever been like that? You're just so distraught, you're so angry, you can't even eat. So for a day, he just doesn't even eat. He goes and he meets David in this field where David had been hiding out or where they had planned to rendezvous. And they weep. The Bible says that they wept and David wept more. They just weep. Because they know. This is it. This isn't like Saul's mad. This isn't like, oh, Saul threw a spear. He wants me dead. And this is when David, I think this is when the reality actually settles in. He's my enemy. This is not going to change. And so David determines at that point, he determines to flee. He determines to go in and get it, go into hiding. Because he realizes, if I stick around, I'm a dead man. And so they, they weep and they actually reconfirm their covenant again. They reconfirm that they're going to stand by each other no matter what. David runs off. First he goes to, well, first he goes to the priest. He gets a sword. He didn't have any weapons. He gets Goliath's sword that was in the priest's house. He gets some bread from the priest, which because uh, he didn't have any food. And he actually goes to the city of Gath first, which is a Philistine city. I don't know what would come over a person to want to go to the city where, of the giant you killed. You know, he killed Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. He goes there to try to hide. He's, his life is totally threatened, and God rescues him out of that. So he probably thought, well, that was a bad idea. Let's not do that. So he goes back to Judah, where, he, where his hometown was, or his home region, and he ends up hiding in a cave. He takes his mom and dad, and he p- takes them to Moab, which is another nation, and hides his mom and dad out. And basically, he hide, starts hiding out in caves, and about 400 men gather around him, later 600, and they gather around him. People who are disillusioned, people who are mad at the government, people don't, you know, poor, or they don't have taxes, you know, that kind of a thing, or they can't pay their taxes. And they come and they gather around David. And from that point on, for probably about a decade, he's fleeing from Saul. I mean, have you, can you imagine, like I said, as I just went over that story, can you imagine how confused and bewildered you would be? Have you ever been in that place? I mean, really, any time bad things happen to us, sudden catastrophes, you know, you, you ever feel like you're just going through life, everything's fine, and it's like some linebacker or, you know, or some wide receiver, uh, I mean, a tackle, I shouldn't say wide receiver, that'd be on the offense. Some, you're just running, oh, I'm going to score the touchdown, and bam! <laughs> you know? Have you ever felt like that? You're, oh yeah, God is good, bam! And it just takes you out, takes your legs out. Where did that come from? Totally blindsided by, by some event in your life. I mean, and, and any time, you know, catastrophe happens, even sickness or maybe a car accident or, or, or something like that, oftentimes we're just so confused, aren't we? I'm like, what? What just happened? Why did that happen? And so often we find ourselves asking those questions. Why did this happen? So often we find ourselves asking God, God, how could you let that happen? Why did you let that happen? Over and over again. But especially if it was relationship, isn't it? 
Have you ever been betrayed or felt like you were betrayed or something like that? Just, oh my goodness. Can you imagine one minute you're in favor and the next minute this guy wants to kill me and you have no idea why? Can you imagine how you would feel? Some of you do. Can you imagine the confusion, the what did I do? Literally for years, David had no idea why. David actually assumes that other people were, were, um, were conspiring against him and like provoking Saul. He had no idea. He's like, I mean, is this like a conspiracy? Do people not like me? What is going on? He had no idea. Confusion, bewilderment, and you wouldn't even know what to do. And the question is, man, when you get tackled, when you get blindsided, when something crazy happens, how do you respond? If you were going through what David was going through, or something similar, again, sometimes it's just external things, circumstantial things, life situations, we live in a broken, fall world. Other times it's relational. And sometimes we go through relational stuff and we were a part of it. But there's times where it's like, what did I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. How do you respond? What's really cool is we can actually see how David responded. Turn with me to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. What's cool is a number of David's psalms, we don't know when they were written. You have to kind of read them and figure it out from the context. And um, I've, I've tried to do that a bunch. But what's really fun is when a bunch of the psalms will actually tell you when they're written. A number of the psalms in the 50s actually tell us when they were written. So they give us the context and the situation. And you can compare the story I just told you to the psalm that David is actually singing to God. It's absolutely amazing. I love it. I love putting them in chronological order and kind of seeing how David responded. And so we can look at Psalm 59 and we can see what David's response was when this all went down. So in Psalm 59, what's called the uh, superscript there right before verse 1, it says, to the chief musician set to... Do not destroy, some song back in the day. It says, a miktam of David. We have no idea what miktam means. Uh, When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So when did he write this? When did he sing this? It says, when Saul's men were, were circling David's house. It was that time when he didn't really know what was going on, but he thought, dude, Saul wants to kill me, and he snuck out of the house. He's either singing this like in the house or he's singing this after he escaped. But either way, this is what he sings when it all goes down. When he he realizes, dude, I'm out of here, right? And then he runs to Samuel after this. This is what he says. Verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Deliver me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. He's not, being, he's not exaggerating, is he? Can you imagine the heart-wrenching uh, uh, cry that's coming out of his heart as he sings or prays this? God, deliver me from these bloodthirsty men. Verse 3, for, they, for look, he's saying, God, look, look at what they're doing. They lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Did you hear what he said? God, I have no idea why they're doing this. God, they are trying to kill me, and I haven't sinned against them. I have not transgressed. I have no idea what they're doing. 
from, I, have, I am not at fault. He's crying out to God. Now, David's not saying, some people think when David says things like, God, vindicate me from my righteousness, they think, oh, David's saying he's sinless. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in this matter, I have not done anything to warrant this attack. He's saying, my integrity is clear on this. He's not trying to say ever that he's like sinless. David many times will confess his sin in Psalms. He's saying, God, deliver me from these people who are trying to take my life because I've done nothing to try to warrant them doing this. So he's just crying out to God, pouring out his heart, telling God what's going on and telling him how he's you know, feeling. He doesn't necessarily express too much or say specifically his feelings in this, but he's just pouring out, expressing himself to God. He keeps going on and he says, uh, in verse, uh, end of verse 4, Awake to help me, and behold, you, though, the, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? So he's trying to say, God, they're like growling dogs. And they're, and, they're, and they're boastful. They're saying, man, who, who hears? It basically, like, who's going to hold us accountable to this? He's basically saying that, the, that they're being uh, devious and, and, and malicious and, and sneaky about this. But listen to what he says in verse 8. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall, have, you shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O my strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. David is crying out to God, help me, defend me, come through for me. He's telling him, look at what they're doing. I haven't done anything to warrant this. And he says, these people are workers of iniquity. These people are doing this out of sin. But you, oh God, you're going to laugh at them. And he goes on, he keeps describing what they're doing, and he ends with this in verse 16 and 17. This is how he ends this song. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy or love in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense. What is he doing? Notice, I love this. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. When's he singing this? At night. What's he doing? You are my defense. You are my rock and my refuge. You are my strength. You're going to be there for me. My God of mercy will meet me, he said. My God of mercy, because you love me. You're the God of mercy. You love me. You've made a covenant to me, and you love me, and you're going to be there for me. And he says, I'm going to sing of your power. I'm going to sing of your love, even in the morning. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. I'm going to praise you because you are my defense. See, I want you to see something that David, in this psalm, he doesn't blame God. He's not complaining. He's not blaming God. He's not saying, God, why'd you let this happen? He's not saying, if you love me, you wouldn't let this happen. He's not blaming God. What's he doing? He's crying out. He's crying out for help because he believes that God loves him and that God is for him, not against him. He does not believe that God is the reason this is happening. He does not believe that God is the source of this attack or this trial. He believes that God is good and God loves him 
and God is for him. And I love what he determines to do. But I'm going to praise you. But I'm going to praise you. And listen, this is the thing he sings when all hell breaks loose. This is what he sings when some dude just blindsides him. This is his knee-jerk reaction. This is not calculated. This is not like five months later. This is his knee-jerk reaction. Squeeze the tube, what comes out of David's heart? He doesn't blame God. He says, I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise you. You don't get that overnight. You don't cultivate that when the trial comes. You cultivate that before. Whatever, the tri- whatever comes out of you when the trial hits you, that's what's already in your heart. That's what you really believe. And I want you to see that David didn't blame God. See, in Psalm 5, let me just uh, reference a few other things here. In Psalm 5, listen to what David says. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor will evil dwell with you. God, you are not a wicked God. Wickedness does not dwell with you. What is David saying? He's going through these trials and he's asking God, what is going on? He's pouring out emotion to God and he's very real and very vulnerable to God. But let me tell you something. There's a difference between grieving and being honest and blaming God. Huge difference. David is crying out to God for help. And he will say this, they are wicked. They are trying to kill me and I've done nothing. But you, O God, you are not wicked. In other places, David will say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever and his faithfulness continues to all generations. What did David believe about God? That God is good, people not so much. That God is good, that he is not the source of wickedness, he is not the source of suffering, he is not that God. That people are the ones who were attacking him. And they were sinning against him. David makes a very clear distinction between what God is doing and what people are doing. Many times we don't. And we confuse it and we blame him. See, when we go through a trial, when we go through something, we're always looking for someone to blame or something to blame or the source or the reason. There's something about human beings we just want to know. Why? Why? And I don't know. There's something about God. He doesn't like to tell us. Why? Read the book of Job. I do, we just finished the book of Job if you're in our reading plan. Where did that attack come from? It was from Satan. People will bring up this, the thorn in Saul's, Paul's flesh, right? The apostle Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh. Where did it come from? The Bible says it came from a messenger of Satan. I don't know why it's so hard for people to... Where did it come from, right? Where did it come from? But Job never knew that. Did you know that in the book of Job? God never told him. He never found out why it happened. Never found out. Oftentimes, we go through trials. God will give us truth. He will give us his presence. He will be with us. He will reveal who he is. He will reveal what response is required of us. See, the Bible tells us how to respond to these things. But oftentimes, we don't know why. I'll be honest with you. I don't think David really ever knew why. It, was never, it wasn't like God was like, David, I have done this to test you and to refine you. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say that. You want to know why this is happening to David? Because some dumb king is jealous and angry 
and demonized. The Bible says that he was demonized. And he wanted to kill David. That's why. That's why. That's why it happened. See, David understood something about God. That God created this world perfect and good. And then this serpent came along and tempted Adam and Eve. And they believed the serpent. They believed the lie of the devil instead of the truth of God's word. And every one of us, we continue to do that. We believe the enemy's lies instead of the truth of God's word. And the Bible makes it very clear that God created everything good, that his will is perfect, and that suffering and disease and death are because of the fall, because of human rebellion, demonic endorsement of that rebellion. Where do those attacks come from? The enemy. Where was that attack coming from against David? Wicked people. It wasn't God. It wasn't God. Now David, he understood this. Even in Psalm 10 he says, he's actually in Psalm 10, he's really struggling with this. He's basically saying, God, why are the wicked prospering? They basically don't even believe you. They don't even believe you're, you're holding them accountable. Why are they prospering? The Bible People in the scriptures often wrestled with why do the wicked seem to prosper and the innocent suffer? That is a question that we have wrestled with throughout time and the Bible is not hiding that question from us. And yet every one of those people in the scriptures, they always come to a conclusion because this is truth. This is reality. They all understood, God, you're not the source of it. You are the judge. See, David would say in Psalm 10 after, and he's wrestling with this, that this is the truth. But you have seen For you have observed trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. David believed that God was king and judge. And that God would hold us accountable. That every human being will be accountable to their actions. See, we know something that even David didn't know. That God sent his only son, Jesus. That our sins could be forgiven. We've made right with God. But here's the crazy thing. We as Christians, we live between the times. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in full yet. God has brought the answer, the cure, the redemption, the blood of Jesus. His kingdom has come. And so we can see, we are right now seeing nations coming to Jesus. The world is being transformed by the gospel. The church is salt and light. Great things are happening. There are people in this world who love God and who are sincere. Back in the day, it was like David. Now, there's millions of people on earth who love God like David did. God is doing great things on the earth. The kingdom has come, but not in full. Sometimes we pray for people and they don't get healed. There are nations that still are raging against God. Crazy things are happening in this world. Horrible injustices are being done. In one church, you can have people who are sincere and not. But this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus told us this is exactly what things would be like. In Matthew 13, Jesus explains, God planted some seeds in the ground, ground, and it grew wheat. Who planted those good seeds? God. If you read Matthew 13, the devil came along and planted bad seeds, and tares grew up, weeds. Who planted the bad seeds? The devil. Not only God planted both, and yet we blame him, don't we? And so Jesus explains to us, That before he returns, there will be both wheat and tares. The fruit of God's kingdom. 
transforming people's lives, transforming the nations, sincere people, people who love God, people who walk in God's ways, and tares, weeds, the fake, the inauthentic, the people hurting other people, and not repenting, and not changing, nations raging against God. And guess what you and I get to do? We get to choose which one we align our lives with, which kingdom. Why is just Jesus not come back yet? Because he's giving time for people to repent. God will come back. Jesus will return to this earth and he will judge the nations. And he will restore justice on the earth and make everything right. But until that day, his kingdom is growing and increasing. Good things are happening. And bad things too. And it's in the context of all that bad stuff that we get to be salt and light. And you and I get to choose. Which one do you want to focus on? Do you want to see the good that God is doing in someone or do you want to judge them? Do you want to see the good that God is doing in the nations, how people are coming to know him? Or do you want to see the bad? See, the church, so many people in the church, we have this spirit of offense towards God. An offense towards God. Because we believe that he is the source of this wickedness, the source of these sufferings. We think that God is allowing these things and God is passive and God is distant and God is not doing these things. And, and oftentimes the spirit of offense is such an accusation against God. It's such a self-righteous pride. It's an accusation that you are doing this to me and you are allowing this. And so often a spirit of offense says, I have believed you and you have not been faithful. I have done my part and you have not done your part. It's a spirit of offense and we know that is, that can, that is not true. God is always faithful and always good. And that spirit of offense, some people, it just takes them out. It takes them out following God. And other people, they keep going to church, but it's this like low-grade infection. It's this low-grade infection that's just in so many believers. And I'll tell you, when trials come, it's good to be honest with God, but when trials come, what was in their hearts come out. And they blame God. And they focus on the negatives. And they don't see what David saw. See, what we need is we need a renewed mind. We need the truth to renew our mind. This is one of the key reasons we do Operation Saul Lives, so that you can get your mind renewed and your heart purified from those things, so you can understand the ways of the kingdom and understand why sufferings happen. Because Jesus promised us the storm will come, but if your rock is founded on the word of God, if your roots are deep into God's soil, then the storm will come, but you'll remain unshaken that's what happened to David. His roots were deep. He believed God loved him. He understood wickedness is not a part of God. Bad things happen. Wicked people do unjust things, but God is still good. That he's not the source of this. And so God is on my side. God is for me. God will judge on my behalf. And he believed that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David would say that. I believe goodness and mercy will follow me all days of my life. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He believed God would vindicate him in this life. He believed that God would fill his promise that he would be king. But he also would say things like, when I awake in righteousness, I will see your face and be satisfied. David understood no matter what, one day I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to reign with God on the earth. Because even David, even though he didn't have the full understanding we do of the Messiah, he understood the hope of the resurrection and the restoration of all things that we know is already happening. Jesus has risen, the kingdom has come, and the gospel is bearing fruit, but there's still terrors. And so Jesus told us, told us this is going to happen. Remember Jesus uh, in Matthew 13, the same chapter, God comes and sows the seed of God's word. 
Because he wants to see you bear fruit. He wants to see you get breakthrough. He wants to see other people get breakthrough. And he wants to see you be a blessing. So God comes and sows the seed of God's word. The kingdom seed in your heart. And he says there's four types of soil. Remember that? The hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. The good soil bear, receives that word, holds on to it in the hard times, and bears fruit. The hard soil, so hard, doesn't even know what's going on. Here's the word, bounces right off, the enemy steals the seed. The Bible says, Jesus makes it very clear, it's the devil that steals that seed. The rocky soil are the rocks in people's lives, the unresolved issues, the offense, the lies, the things that they believe about God that are not true. And it says this, that when trials, when tribulation or persecution come, for the word's sake, for the word's sake. What's the, what are the trials and the persecutions coming after? The word. To do what? To try to get the word out of your heart, yes? Jesus said, so when those trials and the persecutions come, for the word's sake, he says, those who are on the rocky soil, they stumble, or literally the word is, they become offended at God offended at God and others, really. It says they stumble. And you know why he says it? Because their roots were shallow. They had no roots. See, when you go through trials and you respond a certain way, it reveals something about you, not God. God is good. He is sovereign and reigns. How you respond reveals something about you and what you believe. And Jesus told us, every one of us will go through trials. When you have the word in your heart, it will be tested. I guarantee it. Why? Because the enemy wants that word out of your heart. Do you think that the farmer plants seed and then takes the seed out? Is God the farmer trying to get the seed in your heart? Or is he the the one trying to send trials to get it out of your heart? This is what people think. Now, do trials test what's going on in us? Yeah. Does God use it that way? Yeah. And, And could judgment... Is there judgment from God at times? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes we do things that are sinful, and then we get, there's judgment or consequences to that. I'm not saying that's not true, but he's good in that. Even if there's judgment, it's always a call to repentance. Well, I'm talking about just stuff, crazy stuff we go through. Why? Because we live in a broken, fallen world that's been diseased and broken because of sin, because of our rebellion, and because of demons. And Jesus says, the seed comes, and for the word's sake, those trials and persecutions come. Who's trying to get that seed out of your heart? It's not God. It's the devil. And then there's the thorns. Jesus also said the thorns, which are distractions, the pleasures of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the cares of this life. What, do you, what is that from God too? God's trying to send you the, 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 the weeds to distract you, to make you busy, to keep you from thinking about God, to get you worried and focused on your money instead of trusting God? Is that what it is? No. That's from the enemy. That's from this world system, which is endorsed by the devil. God is not trying to kill you, and God is not trying to destroy your faith. But when you go through those testings, it's showing you what's in your heart. Now, what do you think? Was David offended at God, or did David have deep roots? David had deep roots, didn't he? He didn't blame God. He knew, this is not from you. And so why is it that David cried out to God? Why is it that David poured out his soul to God in honesty? Because he knew God loved him and knew God was good. And why did, God, and why did David praise God? Because he knew that God was good and he loved him. What did he say? I'm going to still praise you. I'm going to praise you because you're my God of mercy, my defense. But how do you respond? What happens when you're going through trials? What's your knee-jerk reaction? When you get pushed up against a wall, when something blindsides you, how do you react? How do you respond? 
It's revealing what's going on in your heart. And let me tell you, how you respond to trials will make or break you. You either go through those trials. Jesus said you either go through those trials and you hold on to the word and you end up bearing fruit. Or you become offended at God. You don't make it through that trial. I believe this is called the faith test. Will you keep praising him in the trial? I believe if you'll pass the faith test, if you will, if you'll, if you'll believe him, I'll tell you, I think you pass all the rest. But if you can't stand firm in the faith test, oftentimes we don't have the strength to pass the others, like integrity tests and obedience tests, because we're harboring offense towards God. Many people, they're just passive in the church. They're not pressing into God. They have no motivation. You know, we talk about worshiping or pressing into God. They just, I don't have any motivation to seek the Lord. Why? You want to know why? You want to know what, what zapped you of your motivation? Most of the time, there's no offense towards God. 90, 99% of the time. Somebody's bound in temptation, or bound in sin, I shouldn't say, bound like in an addiction. What is the one thing I go after? First, you're the righteousness of God if you put your faith in Jesus. Because the accusation is, you're a sinner and there's shame, but where do we think that shame is coming from? God, which is an offense towards God. God is attacking me. God is shaming me. God doesn't love me. God is causing these things. No, he's not. God loves you. And he died so you could be righteous. He's not against you. He's for you. But when there's shame on a person's life because they're in sin, it's offense. But more than that, nine times out of ten, people think, I don't know why God just doesn't take this away. Let me tell you, he created us in his image and he gave us a will. Uh, Saul's will never changed. David cried out to God for deliverance. Saul never changed. Why? Because God doesn't change people's wills. He can give lots of grace. He doesn't change people's wills. It's just what he's chosen to do, I guess. Or in his sovereignty, he... Saul never repented. But David still won. I mean, David still lived, became king, because God was for David. See, I, I don't know what you're going through. A lot of times, you're, many of us... God, change that person, change that person, change that person. And a lot of times I found people get offended because, well, I prayed, I prayed God would change that person. I'm sorry. He, you can pray for that person to be saved and delivered and God's grace will be there and they probably will come to him, but they might not. The question is, what will you do? And what did David do? Did David go, man, I'm done with this. God didn't answer my prayers, I'm out of here. No, he praised him. Praised him. I remember when I was 17, new Christian, one of the first things the Lord shared with me. I was going through a lot of emotional stuff. It wasn't definitely as, or as bad as David. It definitely wasn't as bad as many of the things you guys have been through. I was just 17. But I was really struggling. Though I had come to the Lord at 16, I had discovered the love of God. I was an emotional roller coaster. I, 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 I was full of de, you know, depression and self-pity and all this stuff. And there was some relational things going on, some family things going on. I was doing ministry for the first time as a new Christian and feeling like a failure, which was a, obviously a rude issue in my life. I didn't know any of that stuff. I just felt like a wreck, up and down, and there was a season. I was just depressed. It was, it was no longer up and down. It was just down. And I was, I was depressed, and I was beating myself up, and I was struggling with relationship stuff and family stuff, and I was really worried about where to go to school I hadn't really surrendered to the Lord, and I thought maybe he was calling me to be a pastor, and I was fighting him on that and running from him in that. It was a mess. And in those days, let me tell you, and it took me a long time before, 
God delivered me from that spirit of offense. In those days, I was yelling at him and blaming him. And it was good that I was being honest with him. That was a good part. But I said some stuff that really, I believe, brought bondage in my life just because I believed it, I believed it was true. It wasn't the honesty that was the problem. It was the lies I was saying to God. And back, hindsight, you know, hindsight, I look back and I go, wow, ooh, ouch, that really brought bondage in my life. And I was going through all this stuff, emotional stuff. And I remember seeking the Lord and I was reading Psalms and David was my example back in those days. And I ran into Psalm 42 and 43. In fact, Sean O'Grady quoted from it this morning. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disquieted within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's what the psalmist says. And this is what the Lord said to me. I'm just reading that. And the Lord spoke to me. One of the first things the Lord ever said to me. Before this point, I was getting principles from the word and all that. But this is what he said to me. It was so loving. It was so wooing. It was like he was wooing me. He was inviting me. He was giving me the victory, right? It goes like this. Praise me anyways. I just find it fascinating that God didn't try to, like, correct me. Now, listen, David. I'm good, okay? I'm a good God. And by the way, David, you have a lot of emotional issues that we need to deal with. He didn't, he didn't even go there. Now, later, we dealt with those things. I, I'll be honest. We dealt with those things later. I just want you to, to hear what the Lord said. He didn't try to, I'll be honest, it's like the Lord didn't try to fix me. The Lord didn't try to tell me, you know, stop that. He told me the one thing that would, would transform my life. He told me the one thing I needed to hear. The one thing that if I would just do that, it would change everything. Why? Because if I started praising him, even in the midst of hard times, I'll build up that resistance, that persevering faith, and I would be saying what is true to God rather than saying what is lies. So often we'll pray and pray and pray and pray and talk and talk and talk and talk about our emotions and talk about this and talk about that and our circumstances and our eyes are on our circumstances and our eyes are on us and our eyes are on me and our eyes are on that person and that person and that person and that person and the Lord would just say, listen to what the Lord said because I believe this whole, like this whole month the Lord's just been telling me, tell them, raise me anyways. Not because you're going to ignore your emotions or your circumstances. No, he's telling us, praise me anyways. Why? Because he's good. Because he's God. Because he reigns and he's faithful and this isn't from him, but he is good and he is sovereign and he will bring breakthrough in our lives. Amen? So how do you respond? We blame or we praise him. And the Lord is telling us today, praise me anyways. Let's do that right now. Let's stand up. Worship team, come on up. And let's praise the Lord. Let's bless him instead of blaming him. Let's declare what's true. Let's get our eyes off of ourself. And like I read earlier, let's allow the Lord to take off the spirit of despair and give us a garment of praise. Because I believe that the Lord would pour out His grace if you would turn your heart to Him. And if you would just come before Him, and let me tell you, I don't mean put on a fake smile. I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a happy mood today, just praise Him because you're happy. But if you're in a, going through a hard time, I'm talking tears... I'm talking be honest. I'm talking cry out to God. And in the midst of that, praise Him. Where you get your eyes off yourself and you praise Him. In the midst of the hard times, in the midst of the honesty. And we give Him the glory that's due His name. Alright? Let's do it.